Well, you may have noticed a few people wearing the same shirt. I don't know if you did or not, um, but they are around both Kenny and Garrett and the front row here. Well done, front row. Um, yes, I know. I dropped my bulletin. Here it is. Yep. Thank you, person that was pointing that out. Got it. Okay. Um, they just got back from a, I don't know if you could read their shirt, from a fall retreat uh, as they spent the weekend together uh, with one another, hearing God's word, singing together, having fun, playing games. Listen, I know what happens at a student retreat. Um, I, every time I remember back growing up in the church, going to these, uh, one, there was all, my heart was always stirred to love Jesus walking away from these. And we shouldn't be surprised when we hear the regular preaching of God's word, singing songs to him around one another. We're just getting an intense focus of the ordinary means of grace. We should expect that. That certainly happened. There was also a lot of fun that happened uh, when I would go to retreats. But something that didn't happen a lot of was sleep. That's the least amount of sleep I got all year. You may have seen Garrett falling asleep earlier as he was playing the keyboard. Um, and so, listen, I, so I know you guys are tired, and I appreciate you being on the front row. Maybe that was to help to try to keep you awake. But listen, if you've got your Bibles open in your lap, and you've got one of these numbers right here, I know what's going on, okay? I invented that move in middle school, all right? So, uh, but there is grace. Listen, there is grace today as you guys are here and on the front row. appreciate you guys uh, being here. Oh, guys, as we jump into then and continue our study through the book of 1 Peter, we get to a new section this morning in Peter. Uh, the first part of Peter, where he began the letter all the way up until uh, chapter 2, verse 10, Peter was focusing on uh, what we've been given by God in Christ, this incredible hope, this hope of the gospel, this living hope that we have because of the resurrection of the dead. This is, if you've heard passages quoted in Peter, it's probably from that section. We just got done looking at a portion where Peter then shifts in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way to where we were last week in chapter 3, verse 12, as he then looks and applies that gospel reality to our lives here as strangers in a hostile world as we are to live within relation to government, in our vocation, and in our marriages, and then to one another. He's applying that truth into how we are to live. He's now going to shift uh, here in chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 4. This is really the heart of his letter, as he's now going to be dwelling on suffering, particularly undeserved suffering, for people that follow Jesus. How are we to engage in a hostile world where we'll receive suffering because of what we believe or, or who it is we follow? This is where he shifts now. And there aren't a lot of um, coffee mugs with verses from this section on here. Uh, if, again, if you've heard anything, it's probably from everything before this, but, but I think this is critically important for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is because there was an article <clears throat> written last year by a pastor named Aaron Wren. And Aaron described kind of the landscape of evangelicalism in America in three different time periods as a positive world, as a neutral world, and as a negative world. Look back at the course of history in America and saw this positive world, everything before 1994, as he labeled it, where society at large retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. There was a social benefit to being a Christian. Uh, the, there was a, um, a basic understanding of the moral norms of society that matched Christian moral norms and violating them could bring negative consequences. But then he said he noticed a shift looking in the 1994 all the way up to 2014 is it shifted into a neutral world where society takes a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but it's not disfavored. 
being publicly known as a Christian has either a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option in the, in the plurist, uh, pluralistic public square. And Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. But he noted a shift in 2014 to what he describes as a negative world, where societies come to have a negative view of Christianity. And being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, you may or may not agree with his assessment of American history in regards to Christianity. Uh, and in particular, this, this takes different shape depending on where you are. Claremont kind of, I think, lags behind the rest of the America in regards to this conversation because I think there's some of the residual of being uh, in, the, uh, in the Bible Belt. I'm from Louisiana, a uh, group went to school in Mississippi, similar there. But regardless of where you are, we can all kind of feel this sense a little bit. And as we begin to feel Christianity and culture becoming more and more at odds with one another, the question is, how as Christians are we to engage with a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to just believing the Christian faith, orthodox teaching of the Christian church? And we all feel this, whether it's in your job, whether it's with your family, whether it's with your friends, you're beginning to feel, oh, if I vocalize things about what I believe or who Jesus is, there, there are consequences to that. And the reason why I think it's important, and I think Peter in particular is so instructive here, is because I've seen wrong responses as this culture has gone into a negative world, particularly two. One response may be, well, man, I liked it when it was a positive world. Let's fight fire with fire and let's get back there. The way in which people are treating us as Christians, let's respond in kind, mock them, belittle them. Let's bring them down a peg and let's... Let's get, let's get it back to how it used to be. And some people may go, well, that's not how Christians are supposed to engage. We're supposed to engage in a, a winsome kind of a way. That our tone and how we say things should be, should be winsome. And if we ever offend anyone, well, the problem isn't on them. The problem's on us. And if we offend, then we need to either, either change what we're saying, change the way in which we're saying it, stop saying it, or maybe change our beliefs. Because we feel this pressure. Well, friends, both of those, I think, are the wrong response. And Peter here, again, as he's writing to Christians living as exiles, that's who he's writing to. He's writing to them to help them understand how do you engage in a world that's hostile to you, that brings undeserved suffering because of what you believe. And so I think if you're not walking through that yet, it's good to prepare for when that day comes. Because it is coming, friends. And how are we supposed to follow Jesus in that? Well, that's what I think Peter gives us here in our passage this morning, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Let's read it, and then we'll dive in. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. For the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Our friends, as we live in an increasingly hostile world, 
Where do we look? What are we supposed to say? And what are we supposed to do? Those are really the three questions I think Peter answers for us here and gives us the outline we'll be walking through. First, where do we look? We look to a living hope and a holy God. That's verse 13 through the first part of 15. Second, well, what do we say? Well, we give a gentle defense as a fearless people. The second half of 15 through the first part of 16. And third, how do we say it? Or or sorry, third, how do we do it? We live a Christ-like life because of a certain future. Second half of 16 through 17. So first, where do we look? This is really the basis for Peter that everything else springs off of. Where do we look? We look to a living hope and a holy God. Look at verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? You hear Peter linking to what he's just said. Who then will harm you? He's linking this to what's just been said in verses 11 and 12. To seek peace and pursue it. Why? Why do what is good? Verse 12, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. As Peter preached last week, there's this echo almost of Romans 8 there within that. God is for you. His eyes are on you. His ears are open to you. His face is against those who do evil. God is for you. You have nothing to fear. The Lord is with you, right? This is the same thing Paul says in Romans 8. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His eyes are on you and his ears are open to you, to all those who have trusted in him. So Peter asked the question, well, who then will harm you? If you're devoted to what is good. They may read that as though like, well, there's nothing bad that's going to happen. No one's ever going to hurt me. It's only going to be good from here on out. I'm going to get a raise in my job. I'm going to have the best marriage in the world. And Mississippi State will win every national championship from here on out. We all know that that's just not going to happen. The third one perhaps being the most improbable of them. As we sit squarely last in the SEC West. um, And we barely, let's, let's move on. No one cares about how Mississippi State's doing this year. And maybe that's what I would read. Well, who will harm you? Oh, there's only good coming for you. Oh, friends, that's clearly, though, not what Peter's describing here. Peter's, again, in the midst of all of this, in this whole letter, talking about suffering, the Christians are already receiving under a, an emperor, Nero, and whose suffering is going to get a lot worse before these people's lives are over. It's not saying that they won't be hurt. There won't be persecution or nakedness or famine. No, what he's saying is that even if people may hurt you, they will be unable to harm you. They will not be able to do anything to separate you from your greatest good, which is nothing around you, but it's in the one that holds you. That Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure. The thing that while you may lose everything else, you can still say Christ is enough. He's enough. His grace is sufficient. And he is my treasure. He is my greatest good. And there is nothing anyone can do to harm me or remove me from that, to separate me from that. Who can harm me if God is for me? The answer, friends, is no one. 
And so devote yourself to what is good. There is this hope that God is here with us and he is for us. To get our minds and eyes off of what is around us and on who is with us. Think of the disciples when they were on the boat in the Sea of Galilee. The storm comes. They're afraid they're going to die. They're throwing stuff off the side. And they're like, well, this is it. This is how it ends. Anyone know where Jesus is? Oh, he's taking a nap down in the bottom. They go and wake him up. And what does Jesus do? Walks up and just says a word. Peace. Be still. And that storm obeys. Listens to its master. And is calm. Friends, the disciples were so focused on what was outside of their boat, they forgot who was inside of the boat. And friends, no matter what you may be surrounded by right now, The enemy wants to get your eyes on the storm outside. And Peter is helping us here going, no, remember who's in the boat. Remember who your God is. Remember Christmas, Emmanuel, he is God with us. Never leave us or forsake us. So who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? He again gives the clause though, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, this is where he gets into this section now, suffering for righteousness. It's a particular kind of suffering he's going to talk about. There's a lot of suffering in this world. Suffering because of the result of our own sin. Suffering as a result of just the brokenness of this world. And suffering sometimes because of your faith for righteousness. That's what Peter's talking about specifically here. Suffering for righteousness. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, look at this next statement. You are blessed. Peter, this is Instagram. Here's the hashtag blessed. None of these people are suffering for righteousness. What are you talking about, Peter? Who are you talking to? What, do, you, do you not understand common English? Well, he wouldn't have because he was uh, here writing to people in Asia Minor and English hadn't been established yet. But nonetheless, Peter, do you not understand how words work? You're talking about being blessed for suffering? You don't understand it. Those two things seem at odds with one another. Oh, friends, there's, we could talk a lot about this, but we, we're not able to. And this is a huge issue, I think, particularly in the West, as comfort has become such an idol. We believe suffering is always um, something done outside of God's will and should be alleviated and removed. Oh, friends, the Bible just doesn't see it that way. The Bible doesn't run to suffering or martyrdom, but as it walks through it, inevitably in a hostile world, has different categories for how to walk through it. To go, I'm walking through suffering for righteousness sake. He says, you are blessed. Where in the world would he get that idea from? He gets it from his rabbi. It's exactly what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. You hear what Jesus is saying here? Because of your faith, because of me, because you've followed me and you've received persecution. And not just physical persecution, but social persecution. You hear that? Slandering, falsely saying every kind of word. Just because we may not be in a situation with some of our brothers and sisters around the world who are killed because of their faith or imprisoned for their life because of their faith, that does not remove the very real persecution that we go through, even socially, to be insulted or slandered. But then Jesus says this, be glad and rejoice. What? Jesus, why? 
because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus and Peter are going, if you're walking through suffering for righteousness, you're in good company. You're walking with the prophets and you're walking with Jesus himself. And Jesus says that your reward will be great. There is blessing not only now, but also when you get to heaven. The way in which we live walking with suffering as a result of following Jesus is accruing this reward that we will receive when we get to heaven. And you go, well, wait a second. Are you saying that we're going to get rewards when we get to heaven based on how we live here? I'm not saying that. That's what the Bible's saying. And you may go, well, wait a second. Are you saying we're going to have different levels of reward? Are we going to get there and be jealous? No, we won't. We won't look at someone else's pile and be like, man, his pile is so much bigger than mine. They have so many more rewards. There will somehow be a perfect love for one another. So I don't know how to explain it. What I do know is the Bible constantly puts this forward as a motivation for how we live today. That Jesus is saying your reward will be great as you are insulted and persecuted and falsely say every kind of evil. And Peter says that if you suffer for righteousness, you then will be blessed. And he gets our eyes on this hope that is to come. He's lifting our eyes on what is coming for us and not what is surrounding us. This hope, this inheritance he wrote about in chapter 1. This living hope to this inheritance that's being kept for us as we are kept for it. That we are to live with that in mind. So friend, how often do you think about that inheritance? And how often does that hope Change your life today. I think it's something we need to think more about. Of what real blessing looks like. In this living hope that we have. And inheritance that we are to have. But Peter doesn't just simply say. uh, Lift your eyes to this blessing that is to come. This inheritance that is to come. He also then says. You don't have to fear them or be intimidated. We'll come back to that in a second. And here's the command in 15. But in your hearts. Regard Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Peter says, yes, have this hope of what is to come, but also in your hearts, have this vision of Christ the Lord as the Holy One. Now, I think what Peter's doing here is he's pulling on a scene from the book of Isaiah. Why do I say that? Because that sentence right before, do not fear them or be intimidated, is an exact quote from Isaiah 8. That Andrew read just a second ago from Isaiah chapter 8. And all through this, I think Peter's pulling on themes from Isaiah. And here in particular, in your hearts regard Christ Lord as holy. This also was said in Isaiah chapter 8. Except Peter added these words, the Lord. Or added the words Christ. That we are to set in our hearts... Christ, the Lord of armies, as the Holy One. Peter is identifying the God of Isaiah 8 as the God, uh, God the Son incarnate, Jesus himself. He's saying these are the same ones that we are to regard in our hearts as Christ the Lord as holy. And I think that Peter is trying to get our attention back to that scene in Isaiah chapter 6, just two chapters before Isaiah 8, where Isaiah had this vision of God. This vision of God, the the king seated on his throne, his robe filled the temple, smoke filled the temple. And there were angels that surrounded him singing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory and the foundation of the temples shook. And Isaiah saw God, the holy one, 
holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is terrified because he, a sinful man, is now in the presence of this holy God. And one of the angels uh, comes down, takes a burning coal, touches his lips and tells him that his sin that was separating him from this God has been atoned for. His iniquity has been removed. And Isaiah then has this response of worship, of reverential awe. And God's like, listen, I've got a job to do, but who am I going to send? Isaiah's like, "Uh, send me, I'll go. God's like, well, you don't even know what you're signing up for. It doesn't matter. I've seen the Holy One. I've felt his forgiveness, and I'm ready to go do his work. He offers God a blank check and says, here's my life. Do whatever you want to with it. He had such a vision of the holiness of God, such an understanding of God's forgiveness of his sin that he said, God, here's my life, and I'm ready to go and do whatever it is you want me to do. And I think what Peter's doing here in chapter 3 is pulling that scene back and going, okay, not only are you to have this understanding of this living hope, but also have this vision of a holy God set in your hearts. Regard Christ as holy in your hearts. Don't just have a mental understanding that Christ is holy. Do not simply memorize Isaiah 6 and go, yeah, 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 I got it. In your hearts, do you have an understanding and seeing and regarding that Christ is the God in Isaiah 6? Christ is the king seated on his throne, the one whom sinless angels surround and go, oh, he's different from us. He is holy. He is other. He is set apart. The whole earth is filled with his glory, not with ours. He commands us. He's the Lord of angel armies. He is Christ the King, the Holy One. Friends, do you see Christ like that? The Holy One, the Holy God. Because as we live in a hostile world, friends, it's important that these things set the reality, the foundation, before we even get to how we engage in the world. Do we have a hope that can't be taken? And do we have a God that is holy? Do we see him there? Now, why does that matter? Well, this is what Peter gets then into. That's what we have to see, what we have to look to, this living hope in a holy God. What then do we say? We give then a gentle defense as a fearless people. That part we skipped over in verse 14. Go back and look again at that quotation from Isaiah 8. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Isaiah was writing in Isaiah 8 to the people of Israel, or the people of Judah in the southern tribe of Israel, who were worried about armies that were coming in. The northern tribes of Israel had made a coalition with a foreign army, and they were going to come down and attack the southern tribes. And the king of Judah... Ahaz was like, man, I got to do something. He begins to talk to Assyria to come over and battle this army that was coming down. And enter Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 7, and 8. And he goes, no, no, no. I've seen the holy God. I've seen the one on the throne. I've seen the one that he has no problems with people. He is seated in the throne of the universe and everything's going his way. He's never walked into a a fight that he's not walked out of victorious. I've seen that God. And guess what? Here's his promise, Isaiah 7. That God is with us. 
He is Emmanuel. That's the great Christmas promise there in Isaiah 7. It wasn't in this sweet swaddling baby that was really, really nice. It was a promise of a people who were afraid of powers that they couldn't defeat. And God said, listen, you don't have to be afraid because I'm with you. The God who is seated and exalted is here with you who's on your side. You don't have to try to make these coalitions with other foreign powers trying to get them to come and save you because they'll actually destroy you. Trust in me. I am with you. And you don't have to be afraid or intimidated by anyone in the north. You don't have to be afraid or intimidated as these armies come around you because I am with you. That's what Peter is quoting here in 1 Peter 3. That's the context of Isaiah 8. And you can hear the connection then here. In 1 Peter 3, as these Christians scattered across Asia Minor were beginning to undergo this persecution, the Spirit of God, through Peter, preparing them for the intense persecution that was coming, writing, telling them, you do not have to be afraid. God is still with his people. It is still this holy God of Isaiah 6 that is here with you, and you do not have to fear them or be intimidated. Oh, and friends, remember who's writing this. It's a little bit of irony and just so helpful. Sometimes I think we can um, uh, see the, um, some figures in the Bible as superheroes and it makes it feel like it's unattainable for us. Remember who's writing this letter. It's Peter. Remember what he's saying now. Hey, don't be afraid of these powers that you can't defeat that are coming in against you. You don't have to fear them or be intimidated. Remember not that long ago when Jesus was taken in The night that he was betrayed, arrested, the day before he was killed, Peter's following behind, giving a little bit of distance, a little bit of worry. He he gets into a a courtyard as Jesus is being standing on trial, the religious leaders. And as Peter's standing around a fire, a little servant girl comes up and goes, hey, aren't aren't you one of those guys that follows Jesus? And what does Peter do? No. No, 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 not me. I get that a lot. You know, people, people, people tell me, I must have one of those faces. I don't know, but it's, yeah, it ain't me. Someone else is like, no, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's you. He's like, oh, absolutely not. Third time, someone's like, yeah, no, that's, I've seen you with him. Peter adamantly denies. And a rooster crows, just as Jesus said he would. And then we get in one of the gospel accounts. It says that Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. Right then, and Peter remembered what Jesus had told him. Peter was afraid of a servant girl. And now he's writing, oh, you don't have to fear armies. What changed? Well, friends, what changed was the resurrection of his Savior and then the empowerment of his spirit gave him something different. And so if you've ever been afraid to share your faith, If you've ever been afraid to talk to somebody about what you believe, I want you to see you're in good company with the disciples. You're in good company with me. I get it. I would rather preach than have a conversation with my neighbor. It's easier for me to get up here. It's hard. Friends, that's why I think in the book of Acts, as we've been studying the book of Acts in our Bible study on Sunday evenings, what do they pray for often? They pray for boldness. I think part of the reason why is because it's hard. Oh, but friends, the Spirit comes and He gives us this new kind of boldness that we don't have to fear or be intimidated because God is with us. Even in a hostile world, we continue to walk forward without fear because God is with us. 
And Peter here changed. He changed in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, he was arrested, brought before that same religious council that had just crucified Jesus. And what does he do? He preaches to them and accuses his accusers. He was changed. He was different. His boldness came not only from the fact that he had been with Jesus, but from the fact that Jesus was still with him. Oh, and friends, it's true for you as well that we can feel fearless. What are we supposed to feel? Oh, friends, we can feel fearless. That when we see this vision of God as the Holy One, He is the one with us, we do not need to fear them or be intimidated. So that's what we feel, fearless. Well, then what then do we say? What do we say? Well, this is what He tells us here in verse 15. After we regard Christ the Lord as holy, He then says this, to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Be ready. Peter says that we are to always be ready. Engage. If anyone were to come and ask, the conversation were to pop up, are you ready to have that conversation? To be ready at any time to give a defense. This, this word is the word that we, in the Greek, get the word apologetics from. The defense of the faith, of our faith. Um, to give a, a, a reasonable explanation, to give a defense, a reason to anyone that asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter said, what are you, you're supposed to uh, uh, be able to walk forward with fearlessness, but what do we say? We're to give a defense, to explain with reason this hope that's within us. Now, I want to say something real quick. What Peter is not saying is that you have to be a scholar in order to obey this verse. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians scattered across Asia Minor, small churches, experiencing persecution. He wasn't telling them, hey guys, listen, if you really want to obey this, go to your closest evangelical theological seminary. Be sure to sign up for a master's degree. Get a PhD if you can, because then you'll really be able to do it. And then you can go out and finally give a defense for anyone that could ask. This is not what Peter's saying. Peter's writing to ordinary people like me. And like us, to say you can do this. And why? Because notice what the defense is of. The defense is not the entirety of the logical connections of the Christian faith. It is not a complete understanding of a cultural atheistic engagement with faith. The reason or the, the thing that Peter is saying we must be able to explain is the hope that is in us. Friends, the best thing that you can do to engage in a world is to find an intrinsic, deep, lasting, and unbreakable hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find yourself happy in Him. A hope that can't be removed. A hope that raises eyebrows. A hope that believes and can sing at a funeral. Because of the risen Christ that you've met. And so the thing that you need to do is not, not have, again, uh, I think it's helpful to study apologetics. I think it's good. They can help our faith, help as we engage. But notice that Peter here says we are to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Oh, friends, do you have hope? Is your faith about a living hope? Are you happy in Christ? I want the people around me, I want my kids, I pray that my kids will see in me a kind of happiness that this world just can't compete with. 
that people would begin to come. And you notice here, Peter's even assuming people are going to ask about it. Right? That you would give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. For the hope that's in you. You want me to tell you the times in which I see people who are not Christians engage the most people who are Christians and ask questions? It's in times of suffering. When Christians suffer well. That they are grieving but not like those without hope. You go to a funeral. You go to a tragedy. Something that, that doesn't have any, the world doesn't have any category for how to move forward with. And they watch people with tears streaming down their face singing and praising the God who has given them hope. And there's something powerful about that. And when someone comes and asks you about it, friends, will you be ready to give a defense for that hope? That's what we say, this defense. But notice that Peter here is not simply concerned with what we say, but he's also concerned with how we say it. Verse 16, we are to give this reason for the hope that's in you, yet do this with gentleness and reverence. Reverence before the fear of God. Every time Peter uses that word, reverence or fear, he's using it in relationship to God. He's used it a lot in his letter so far. Live in fear of God, not in fear of man. But as you engage with people, do so with gentleness. Engage your opponents with gentleness, Paul says to Timothy 2 Timothy 2. And friends, again, this is why I think it's helpful for us in this time. Because there are more and more people. You see it on social media. You see it on the internet. People who may say the same thing as you, but they do it in a way that is mocking, that's belittling, that is scorning, that, that owns their opponents and loves to drink their tears. We've all seen it. And there's a part of you even that probably likes it. You know why? Because there's a part of us that likes that. We like to see people that agree with us defeat our enemies. Oh, we want to do the same thing. Let's, let's fight fire with fire. This is how culture is engaging us. We'll engage with them right back. We'll own them. We'll defeat them. This is going to be wonderful. But look at what Peter says here. That as we engage with a hostile world, we are to do so with gentleness. That should be the overarching posture of how we engage. With gentleness. Oh, friends, it's, I, I, I get it. I feel the same thing. And I have to watch myself from being drawn into engaging the world in that way. It feels good. But friends, every sin feels good. If it, if it didn't, it wouldn't be tempting. What we have to do is hold up God's word and ask, how am I supposed to follow Jesus? What does he say? And let me follow him even in times when I may want to do something else. Oh, friends, may we engage in a world in a distinctively Christian way. And not fighting fire with fire, evil with evil, insult with insult. But we respond like Christ did. Why? Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. And we're to follow in his steps. That's one of the ways which I think Peter is corrective here. in what we are to say, to give this gentle defense as a fearless people. But third, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? Well, Peter ends with showing us that we're to live a Christ-like life because of a certain future. Verse 16 and 17. He says, we're to do this, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Now again, notice here this word right there in verse 16. When. When, W-H-E-N. 
This is the other thing I think is instructive for us. Some people will say, well, if we engage in such a gentle way, in such a winsome way, people won't be mad at us. And if they get mad at us, then that's, we need to change something. Maybe we change what we believe. Maybe we should just not say anything because sh- people shouldn't be mad. Oh, friends, Peter is expecting accusation when you are accused. Again, this helps us as we walk forward with what we can expect, especially in a neutral world, in a negative world. There will be accusation. There will be persecution. Why? Because you're an exile and a stranger here. It's Peter's whole letter. We're living as strangers here. This is not our home. We're headed home. And so the darkness hates the light. How do we engage? We engage. We are to engage. We don't pull back. We engage with gentleness. But even if you do it in the most gentle way, people still may hate you. Why would I say that? Because they hated Jesus and no one responded more gently to his critics than he did. And friends, you're following in his steps. This is what Peter, again, this is Peter's whole logic here in this chapter. That we are to do so. um, And when you are accused, when then this world brings accusation. Again, I think a reason why this wasn't physical persecution, but social persecution here. He's talking about accusation here. That when that happens, that those who disparage... Your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. And Peter's saying, you're supposed to continue to live a Christ-like life. Good conduct in Christ. Continue to do this. Do what is good. Peter has said that phrase like a million times in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 15. 220, 36, 311, 313, 326, 317, and 419. All this same phrase. Do good. This is Peter's shorthand for living a godly and a holy life. He's very concerned about us following Jesus and living like he has lived. Do good. But what happens when you do good and you're still accused? If you've been here, you know Peter's talked about this specific ways with people in their jobs, in their marriages, with the government. But now for every Christian, what are we supposed to do? Peter says, keep doing good. Keep living a life in Christ. Keep following Jesus. Accusation will come, but it won't stick. It won't stay. And eventually those things said about you will be revealed on the last day when they stand before God and see all their accusations were wrong and they will be put to shame. I think that's what Peter's talking about here. Some, people, some, uh, some commentators believe that this is talking about people in this life, that if you do what's good, respond in a gentle way, they'll be put to shame I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. Maybe he is. I just don't think so. And here's why. One, that phrase, put to shame, it's used earlier in chapter 2, verse 6, and it's talking about judgment day. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's an that's a understanding of eternity. But the second thing is the reality that if Christians were already being mistreated for their good conduct in this context then how would more good conduct make people go, oh, you know what, they're like extra good, so I'll stop. I just don't think that's what Peter's talking about. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. I think he's describing the reality that before God, all, every single one of us have to stand. And on that day, everything will be made right and wrong. That all those who have persecuted and accused Christians will be put to shame as it's brought into the light and they stand before their judge. And so what can we do then as Christians knowing that that is going to happen? It frees us from having to defeat our enemies, from having to bring vengeance against our enemies because God is the one 
who is just. God is the one who is the judge. God is the one who will not let any injustice go unnoticed or unpunished. And it frees us to engage in a different way with the people that are persecuting us. We can then love them. We can bless them, as he says here earlier. We can pray for them. We can live a life in a way that we hope they will come to know Jesus. Not because they'll get away with the thing they've done against us, but because, as he says in chapter 2, we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, knowing that God will judge every evil, every wrong. We then don't go, oh, it's fine, let's just sweep it under the rug. We go, no, if, someone, if, if anyone doesn't turn to Christ, they'll have to stand before God themselves. And if they haven't, they will be put to shame. There's this last day that frees us to live a different kind of life and to come to the settled conclusion in verse 17 that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now let me continue to follow Jesus and do what is good. And notice, too, the phrase. I know some people, maybe you come out of a tradition of uh, false teaching, a prosperity gospel, um, health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It's like, hey, if you believe in Jesus, good things will happen. That's what God's got coming for you. So if you, you'll see some of these people, televangelists on TV, you'll flip through and like, hey, if you sow a seed, I don't know why they always talk about sowing seeds and when they mean give me money. But anyway, if you sow a seed, send me a check, give us money, God will return that tenfold. So send us some money for $100, God will send it back for 10000 or 1000 whatever 100 times 10 is. I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. And here's what I've always wanted to do, is I've always wanted to call back and say, hey, is this how it works? If I give, God gives me more? And to hear them go, that's exactly right. I go, well, listen, I've got, I've got the idea then. You send me $1,000, and then you'll get 10000 And see if they take me up on it. I have a feeling that they won't. In that mindset, suffering is always wrong. When it says that Christ healed our wounds, they mean physically. And we'll say, no, you should never be sick. You should never be sorrowful. And you should never walk through suffering. Well, friends, look at verse 17. Look at that clause there. That's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. That there are times where it's God's will for us to walk through suffering. And friends, that's not because he doesn't like us or because he's trying to treat us a lesson. It's because often in our suffering, it's in those moments where we are drawn the closest to the heart of Jesus. Oh, I could go a long time in this. But I have met Jesus in the wilderness in a way that I would not have met him if I was in a garden. If you've walked through suffering and you lean in the arms of Christ, you will find a different depth and relationship to Jesus in that moment. You just don't get elsewhere. And we share in the sufferings of Jesus. That's the way the New Testament talks about it. That there's a relationship that's deepened in those moments. And our greatest good is not an alleviation of pain, but in a nearness to God. With the ultimate hope that one day, yes, he will wipe away every tear. So I'm in some ways a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. I just believe it's going to happen when Jesus returns. Then we will find our inheritance. Then sickness will be removed. Then we will be in the presence of God for all of eternity. But that is not yet a reality. It's what we are to look to. And so it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Oh, friends, how then do we respond? If this is Peter's help here for a church and how they're to engage in a hostile world, how are we to respond in a culture and a world that's growing increasingly hostile? 
If your job is telling you to do something contrary to your conscience, how do you respond? If you find your family or your friends are pressuring you to celebrate something that you know that God condemns, how do you respond? Maybe you left a particular kind of false teaching and you're being ridiculed by them as you pursue to know the real Jesus is revealed in his word. How do you respond? Do you seethe with bitterness, desire, vengeance, dreaming of getting back and getting even? Do you hope for their worst? Do you engage with them as they engage with you? Mocking, finding fire with fire, mocking them, belittling them, taunting them. Friends, if this isn't us, it will be in this increasingly hostile world. And so I think we need to understand how to be prepared to not draw back and not engage. God's word says we are to engage. We're to be strangers and exiles here. But we are to engage with gentleness and reverence to God, following the way of Jesus. As he was ridiculed and slandered, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I think as we walk out, it's important for us to have these visions of Jesus from Isaiah. This is what Peter's pulling on all through this, all through this chapter. This vision of Jesus as the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Led to the slaughter. Reviled, persecuted, insulted. But he did not respond in kind. We are to follow his example and follow his steps. Oh, but friends, also the vision, the vision of Jesus as the one of Isaiah 6. That he's not only the suffering servant, but he's also the Lord of armies, exalted and seated on his throne. He speaks and the foundations of the earth shake. Sinless angels bow down around him, singing his praise and echoing his holy song. His glory fills the whole earth and one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. And when he does, his kingdom will be established and will last forever. Sin removed, death crushed, tears wiped away, every sickness healed, every wrong righted, and every pain swallowed up with a joy unimaginable as we're ushered into his presence, the presence of the king, and stand before him face to face to receive the inheritance that he has kept for us. Having the vision of him to help us live here because we, until we get there, we have a mission here. To make disciples of all nations. That's the mission. That we have this vision of God, but even as we engage with the world, we engage in a way that we hope to win them over. With gentleness and reverence. With a reason for the hope that's within us. To go and make disciples. And so we live a different kind of a life. A good life. A Christ-like life. And we engage in a different kind of a way. In gentleness and reverence. Because we have a living hope in a holy God.